Is it a breakout or a fakeout? I am looking at Brent crude at $91.18 per barrel. West Texas Intermediate at $87.94 per barrel. You can see the spread is actually narrowing between West Texas Intermediate and Brent crude. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And I am laser focused right now on this oil situation, as probably many of you are out there as we head into fall here. It seems like there's a lot riding on this oil price. And I like to watch Gareth Soloway. He's been on the program, a great technical trader. And I've seen other technical traders, too, making a big deal about this $90 per barrel price for Brent crude. So here we are at $91.18. And the question now is, is this a breakout or a fakeout? Because the implications of this, of course, are quite far-reaching, particularly when you consider the presidential election in the next year in the United States, which should be the election to end all elections, hopefully figuratively and not literally. So that is going to be a huge aspect, but even more in the near term. How are they going to keep inflation down with oil at $90 per barrel and still moving higher? So this fakeout breakout business, if it is a breakout, this could really send things in a tricky direction, shall we say, with energy really being the spoiler here in this inflation fight. And ultimately, these higher oil prices leaking into basically everything else in the economy, including food inflation, transportation, production of anything, you know, plastic, you name it. It's all made of oil. Okay. You look around you, it's basically all a result of the hydrocarbon revolution. Love it or hate it. It's just the situation. So there is a lot riding on this oil price here. So if it comes back down, one could assume that this no landing hypothesis rather than a soft or a hard landing, that maybe if they can keep energy down, the more likely I would say that scenario is. But if they can't, then I think we're going to be back into, this might not just be a soft landing, but a hard landing. And it is reminiscent, let's not forget of the 2007 run-up in oil that went up to $150 per barrel before we hit the big crisis. So a different situation now. A lot of the other commodities are not really participating in the same way as in 2007, but pretty interesting situation. And you also look at the supply. I mean, Saudi Arabia, from what I understand, has cut a million barrels per day and has extended that to the end of the year, while Russia has cut 300,000 barrels per day, extending that to the end of the year. So supplies are tightening. I mean, it does make you wonder if China really wanted to turn the screws, so to speak, on the West, they should just keep buying oil. And why not? I mean, if oil really is in a breakout and could hit $110, well, $90 will be a great deal. And still, you're turning the screws on you know, your friend Joe Biden and on these Western economies that are still fighting this inflation fight. Look at Europe. You know, they can they really keep raising interest rates in Europe? Germany is in recession. What happens if inflation keeps moving higher? It doesn't even need to go through the roof. 
So it will really put the squeeze on your opponents. So a very interesting dynamic here. Just one more thing as we zoom out. You know, I was thinking about the the interesting, what I'm tempted to call double passport of a lot of nations who are simultaneously, let's say, in the G20, but also in BRICS. And, you know, I keep thinking about that statement that Sergei Lavrov said, the Russian foreign minister, that to call BRICS an economic trade block is to really underestimate and understate its actual importance. Now, I think that could also partly be Russian wishful thinking, right? Because, of course, Russia would love it to be more of a political bloc. Then it has more friends. It has India and also it has Egypt. It's flipping over these countries onto its side. But from, say, India's point of view, uh, you know, an ally of the U.S., yet part of the BRICS, you know, from Egypt's point of view, an ally of the U.S., in theory, but still you know, a member of the BRICS, you know, from the United Arab Emirates view, you know, an ally of the U.S., but still in the BRICS, it gets pretty interesting, doesn't it? I mean, they kind of have a double passport. It's kind of, in theory, they probably get a lot of pressure, but at the same time, they have a hedge. If the U.S. starts causing them problems, they can just sort of cozy on over to China. And so what it makes me wonder is, is this double passport of sorts for some of these nations, are they helping bring about multipolarity? Because again, there's only so much that the US can even do to Saudi Arabia without Saudi Arabia saying, you know what, we sell more oil to China anyway, you know, and there's Mohammed bin Salman, you know, high-fiving with Putin, seeming to get along quite well, you know, doing the same basically energy strategy, reducing supplies seem to be on the same page. You know, if the U.S. starts becoming too unfriendly with any of these nations, these nations now have options and they won't be shut out. So it really does seem to suggest that we are entering into what, you know, Paul at the Sirius Report has been talking about for actually a decade, to give credit where credit is due. Paul has been talking about multipolarity before it was cool. And we really do need to give Paul some credit. Uh, we like to bring him on at the start of each season. So maybe we'll bring him back on in the next couple of weeks here. I'm sure it will be an extended interview as ever. Speaking of interviews, we have a wonderful show today with Anna Gabriela Juarez, president of CTA Environmental Consultants. And it is a wide-ranging interview. She is a friend of the show. So I took the opportunity to ask her about a few different things. I mean, she has a children's book that is coming out, Anna's Adventure at the Mine. That is the reason I want to bring her on to talk about that. But I also couldn't resist asking her about the latest discussion she's having, what is happening with ESG right now as an environmental consultant for mining companies. And it was quite fascinating. It sounds like compliance is front and center, which is quite interesting, not just, you know, as she says, greenwashing, but actually being able to prove it, in a sense, having the paperwork together. So a really interesting interview there. And of course, she talks about her new children's book and the opportunities in Central America, which is also interesting. Of course, she is the founder of Women in Mining Central America. So a wonderful interview there. And also for our This Week's CEO Spotlight, we have Chris Frostad, president and CEO of 
pure point uranium. And of course, uranium is becoming a pretty interesting topic as we are going to see in metal prices. Uranium has broken above $60 per pound for the first time in a long time. So a wonderfully timed interview with Chris Frostad here on what could be a beautiful opportunity in Saskatchewan's Athabasca Basin. He talks about Pure Point's Hook Lake and Smart Lake Project, both joint ventures with Cameco. So a wonderful show ahead. And finally, visit events.northernminer.com if you want to join us in London. It is coming up. It is only a month away, and it is going to be an action-packed schedule. I'm going to have to be like, rested up and worked out and just be eating well because this is going to be non-stop for about 72 hours here. So I am getting hyped up. I have my plane ticket. I am ready to go. Just go to events.northernminer.com. You can see an all-star lineup of the who's who of the mining industry will be headlining and speaking at this event. Again, events.northernminer.com. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Chris Frostad, President and CEO of PurePoint Uranium, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Frostad, President and CEO of PurePoint Uranium, to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Chris, welcome back. Hi, Adrian. It's great to be back. Thanks for having us again. Well, I appreciate you coming back, and it's always great to hear from you. I mean, uranium is one of those stories that keeps investors interested, and we've seen the uranium price edging up in recent weeks here. So tell us, what is new since the last time we spoke? Well, I think on the uranium front, what we've seen over the last year is really a consistent movement up, both on the spot price and on the long-term price of uranium. I think it was about a year and a half ago, Cameco announced a, a new contracting cycle and the equities and the spot price of uranium took a big jump, but it came right off again. And ever since then, we've just seen this steady tick up in both the spot and the long term, which is great. I mean, the long term's gone from, I think, around $48 back then to uh, $58 now. And uh, the spot price has come back from $45. It just popped over $60 in the last week or so, which is a, quite a milestone, actually, for for the spot price of uranium. It needs to, you know, it really needs to get up to about 70 or so before we're going to start seeing any mines turn back on, but it's been that consistent upward trend and it hasn't been caused by any specific announcement or any jarring issue in the market. It's just been a steady increase, which which hopefully, you know, we like to think has been driven really by a, a uh, you know, that balancing of supply and demand as we move forward. So that's what we've seen happening on the uranium front. The equities, on the other hand, have been drifting down during that period of time, all of them right across the board. I think uraniums have held up better than most other commodities. But, you know, a lot of the gains that we all picked up, say, starting about three years ago, really have gone away again. So we're back to a bit of a starting point and the bottom of that curve. And uh, so we like to think that with ourselves sitting at a, at a reasonable price and with the upward momentum in the commodity, we're going to see a pretty good fall and in, in, in the remainder of this year. On our front at PurePoint, we did a fair amount of work in the first half of the year. We do focus on one of our projects called Hook Lake, which is a joint venture we have with Cameco and Arano. 
We're just starting out into a new area over there. We sit adjacent to and on trend with NextGen Zero Deposit and, and Fission's Triple uh, R Deposit. And our partners have been very supportive uh, financially and, and technically in advancing that project. So we were just moving into a new area. We started to come into something very exciting. And uh, we're, we're just getting ready the plans now to, to head back uh, around the end of this year to uh, carry on. So you have several projects, I think seven, I believe, in the Athabasca. Mm-hmm. And this one you're just discussing is the Hook Lake project. And you have another joint venture as well, right? The Smart Lake project? We do. That's a joint venture we have with Cameco. We own 27% and they own the remainder. It's a project that we did one drill program on about 12, 13 years ago, and we hit uranium in the first drill hole, but it was right around that time that things really started to light up next door with with fission and the whole Patterson Lake corridor. And so all of our attention and and money sort of moved over into that area, and that's where we've been uh, working since. We've recently, though, gone back with Cameco. We've looked at a lot of that core, that rock that we, we drilled back then. And now, because of all the work we've done nearby, we're really understanding the nature of the geology and and the rock that we're looking at, much more so than we did 10 years ago, because we're on a different side of the the province, if you will, from where all of the uh, existing mines currently are. So it's kind of a new area. So we're also putting together uh, proposals for uh, to carry on and continue work at Smart Lake uh, with Cameco. They're, They're anxious to get us back out there and move that project along as well. Interesting. So where do things stand then with both of these uh, joint ventures? I mean, you got to be happy with uh, joint ventures with the likes of Cameco and Orano. Is one more ahead than the other? Are you drilling? I think Hook Lake is certainly far more advanced than, than Smart, although it's a much bigger project. It's a larger area. So at Smart Lake, we really only have two or three specific uh, target regions that we'd be drilling, and we're going to be starting out there uh, this year probably with just some geophysics to to narrow down those targets, whereas at Hook Lake, we're, we're far more along, along the curve, if you will. We just moved into, as I was mentioning, into a new area. It's called the Carter Corridor, and for a number of reasons, it looks to be far more perspective than where we've been before. And uh, it's it's another area that we only drilled once about 12 years ago, started hitting uranium, but again, moved over to where all the action was. And uh, we're going back there now. Uh, last winter, we did a program where we were doing fairly large step outs, like about 800 meters uh, between drill holes. And you can, you know, you can fit five or 10 deposits in between that sort of an area. But it was really to try and get a sense of the geology and uh, determine where we really wanted to put some emphasis. And it was on our last hole of last season when we started running into radioactivity and mineralization and alteration and all the other good things that we look for when we're drilling out there. So we've spent a fair amount of time with our partners kind of looking at, at looking at all of that data that we we drew on. And this year we'll be going back to now move into to extend that area where we started uh, coming into something good. And uh, we're all kind of anxious to get back there. Excellent. So as far as the local communities, is everything working out there? Is it too early in the process? No, it's not too early in the process. We've been working out in Saskatchewan for quite some time now and right across the basin. Most of our, all of our other projects are only actually on the east uh, side of the province. And we have relationships with with all of the communities at this point. There's a number of them in, in the area where we're working on the east and on the west. And uh, 
it, it's important that we that we build those early relationships with them. We hire out of those communities when we can, and uh, we've we've done training out of those communities. We've helped set up, uh, you know, small businesses and things for some of them. So it is important to get that relationship off early, even if you're not digging a big hole and trying to mine something. You know, there's other concerns, the economic ones I mentioned, and and also just uh, to make sure that we're we're acting as uh, as good neighbors out there on uh, on lands that they rely on. Great. So. Then as we look forward here, in a sense, what are you hoping to accomplish here in the next little while? What does the roadmap look like as we kind of look off into the next, you know, six months, sure. a year? We're always very careful on when we start pulling the trigger on things. And that is, you know, we've been around long enough to have seen a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And and we don't want this to be a roller coaster ride. As we got into the summer and realized that the markets were not, were heading in the wrong direction, um, you know, we were able to kind of pull in our horns and keep our powder dry and maybe not do some of the work we might have done in the summer. But that just makes sure we're here to... Uh, you know, to fight the good fight a few months later. We've got adequate cash in the bank to uh, keep things rolling and to keep a, a, a fair amount of maintenance work and other things that we have to get done done. But as we head into the fall, I think uh, we're looking at a period when we're going to be able to raise the money we're going to need to not just work at, at Hook and Smart, but get back out to some of the other projects that are uh, waiting to take a drill as well. So I think, you know, over the next month or so, we'll we'll see a financing probably put together. Uh, we'll also see our budgets coming in for for Hook and Smart. And, you know, based on how all that goes, we'll be uh, seeing what additional work we might want to uh, carry out early in the new year moving forward. Beautiful. So as we wrap up then, uh, what is your message to investors? Why should they be excited about PurePoint Uranium? You know, I think the underlying fundamentals of the market continue to hold. Uh, we've been living under a, a, a demand supply imbalance uh, for quite some time, for over a decade now. And we're seeing that turn around. We're seeing on the demand side, we're seeing more and more reactors being built every day. And on the supply side, we're seeing a, a shortage growing. And we're witnessing that in the upswing of prices. So, you know, right now, I think uranium is a good place to be. I think the equities are at a bit of a low point right now. They're back where they were three years ago. So the, the pricing is all good. And on our front, I think we've got some of the best partners in the world supporting some of the best projects in the world. And as long as they continue to support those projects, I think it, there's a good chance that's going to be where we're going to see the next discovery. And on top of that, we have you know another five or six projects that are in various stages of advancement. We've also seen a lot of good results so far, and we'll continue to work those as well. So you know, from an exploration standpoint, we think we're we're working the odds pretty good as being uh, someone who's going to going to nail this thing sooner than later. Chris Frostad, president and CEO of PurePoint Uranium, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And once again, a big thank you to Chris Frostad and PurePoint Uranium for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website. Big story out of Malaysia, Malaysia to ban export of rare earths to boost domestic industry. So let's take a closer look. This is Reuters via mining.com. Malaysia will develop a policy to ban exports of rare earth raw materials. And that is an important point here. Raw materials to avoid exploitation and loss of resources, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim said on Monday making it the latest country to restrict shipments of key minerals. Malaysia is home to just a fraction of the world's rare earth reserves with an estimated 30,000 metric tons, data from the United States Geological Survey in 2019 showed. 
China is the biggest source with an estimated 44 million tons of reserves. So again, Malaysia has 30,000 metric tons. China has 44 million. So that is about, you know, one and a half thousand times, about 1,500 times more reserves in China. The decision, however, comes as the world looks to diversify away from China, the world's largest producer of the critical rare earth minerals that are used widely in semiconductor chips, electric vehicles, and military equipment. Anwar said the government would support the development of the rare earths industry in Malaysia and that a ban would, quote, guarantee maximum returns for the country, end quote. He did not say when the proposed ban would come into effect. And here is a quote from the prime minister as well. Detailed mapping of rare earth element sources and a comprehensive business model that combines upstream, midstream, and downstream industries will be developed to maintain the rare earth value chain in the country. So we've seen this playbook many times before. It reminds you of Indonesia clamping down on its nickel exports. Finally here, analyst David Merriman at Project Blue said the impact of a Malaysian ban was not immediately clear due to a lack of details, but a ban on rare earth ore could affect Chinese companies operating in Malaysia. Quote, the legislation could have some negative impacts on potential investment in Malaysia from Chinese parties, which have looked to other Asian nations to source unprocessed or mixed rare earth compounds as feedstock for rare earth processing facilities in southern China. Also, this is what crossed my mind. Australia's Linus Rare Earths, the biggest producer of rare earths outside China, has a plant in Malaysia to process concentrate that it gets in Australia. It was unclear if Malaysia's planned export ban will impact Linus, which did not immediately respond to a request for comment. And remember, the government in Malaysia was making an issue of the radioactivity that was created in this whole rare earth production process. I believe the dumping of radioactive waste. Remember that? You can take it on your boat back to Australia. If this radioactive waste is no big deal, then feel free to put it on a boat and take it right back to Australia. Quite brilliant politics, in my humble opinion. Continuing on, Chinese rare earth prices hit 20-month high on Myanmar supply worry. This is Reuters via mining.com. Chinese rare earth prices jumped to their highest in 20 months as mining suspension in major producer Myanmar sparked stockpiling ahead of the peak consumption season, analysts said on Thursday. Prices of dysprosium oxide leapt to $356 per kilogram on Wednesday, the highest since May 2022, latest data provided by Shanghai Metals Market on LSEG Icon showed. Terbium oxide prices rose to 8,600 yuan a kilogram, a level unseen since July 3rd. Mines in Myanmar's Penghua region in Kachin State, the country's biggest source of rare earth, have been closed from Monday in preparation for inspections, consultancy SMM said in a report. And they continued, quote, A local miner said they have not resumed production and are waiting for a notice on the next step from the inspection team, said Yang Jai Wen an analyst at SMM. Myanmar accounted for 38% of rare earth imports into China in January to July, Chinese trade data showed, while the Southeast Asian country was the fourth biggest source of rare earth mining in 2022, data by the U.S. Geological Survey showed. So the dates on these, Myanmar is September 7th, and Malaysia is September 11th. 
So it's quite interesting to hear how Malaysia and Myanmar simultaneously are cutting off China as a supplier to China. So again, getting out your speculative cap, you wonder if the U.S. is playing a role in the background here. We have another quote from David Merriman at Project Blue, who said, any extended shutdown of mining in Kachim could be quite damaging for Chinese refineries in southern China, which are reliant upon feedstock from Myanmar, though the increase in imports from Laos could relieve this somewhat. So, so pretty interesting development over there. Hard to figure out what to make of that one. Continuing on, platinum market faces record deficit. WPIC says, this is Reuters via mining.com, Platinum will register a 2.2% bigger supply deficit than previously expected for 2023 at a record 1 million troy ounces, driven by strong demand and flat supply, the World Platinum Investment Council said on Wednesday. Rising vehicle production with use of more metal per vehicle and substitution by automakers of palladium for cheaper platinum is helping to drive demand. Supply, meanwhile, is expected to remain at last year's 7.2 million ounces, partly owing to ongoing electricity shortages in major producers South Africa. This will leave the market undersupplied by 1 million troy ounces this year, said the WPIC, which three months earlier predicted a deficit of 983,000 ounces. The WPIC expects automotive and industrial consumption to underpin total demand growth for platinum in 2024 and availability of above-ground stocks to decline. And here is a quote from the WPIC. By the end of 2023, above-ground stocks will represent only five months of annual demand, with most of these stocks held in China and not readily able to be exported to meet global shortfalls, increasing concerns over metal availability. So it sounds like most of the available stocks are already in China, and there's no guarantee that those will ever leave China. So it sounds like the shortfalls are starting now. In fact, and so we'll have to take a close look at that in the metal prices section. Continuing on, Orano halts uranium treatment in Niger because of sanctions on Junta. Bloomberg News via mining.com. French nuclear group Orano SA is halting the processing of uranium ore at one of its facilities in Niger because international sanctions against the military Junta are hampering logistics. Now, they say international sanctions I wonder, like, is that ECOWAS or are there other sanctions that have been imposed here? The crisis that's affecting the African nation, which has about 5% of the world's uranium, may potentially tighten supplies of the material used to fuel nuclear reactors in the US, China, and Europe. That may force utilities to become more dependent on other producers such as Kazakhstan, Canada, and Australia. And again, it sounds like It's the sanctions that are preventing the uranium from being processed in Niger, not the junta halting the export of uranium. Operations continue at the group's Somer mine, which is 37% owned by the Niger government, the company said. So interesting story out of Niger there. U.S. Saudi Arabia in talks to secure metals in Africa. So the U.S. continues to try and make more inroads in Africa, playing catch-up here with China. This is a report from the Wall Street Journal through Reuters via mining.com. The United States and Saudi Arabia are in talks to secure metals in Africa needed to help them with their energy transitions, 
The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday citing people with knowledge of the talks. A state-backed Saudi venture would buy stakes in mining assets worth $15 billion in African countries such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Guinea, and Namibia, which will permit U.S. companies to have rights to buy some of the production, the report added. So isn't this interesting? A Saudi Arabian venture fund would buy the stakes in these African countries, but as part of the deal, U.S. companies would have rights to buy some of the production. So interesting story over there. And continuing on, a headline here, Peru copper production rises by 17.7% year-on-year in July. So there's been a lot of concern in Peru and Chile about production declining. So in Peru in July, production rose 18%. They are the second largest copper producer in the world, and they want to keep that rule as the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, surpassed them for one month, and now they are feeling the pressure. You get the impression in these countries, copper production is a major political issue. Another headline here, Russia's largest untapped copper deposit starts concentrate production. So Russia has opened a new mine here. Copper concentrate production started at Russia's largest undeveloped copper deposit on Monday, following a ceremony overseen by President Vladimir Putin via video link. So you just see how important these resources are. I mean, Vladimir Putin himself is at the ceremony here. The long-awaited Udokan project in Russia's Far East is coming on stream at a challenging time. The United States imposed sanctions on its operator, Udokan Copper, in April as part of a wave of restrictions placed on Russia due to its activities in Ukraine. Another headline here, AI helps BHP fight declining ore grades at biggest copper mine. And so this is in Chile's Escondida copper mine. And basically, they are using AI to improve recoveries. Here is a quote from operator BHP Group. Quote, increased copper recovery has been achieved at Escondida by using AI recommendations, new machine learning, and data processing platforms to help optimize flotation operational parameters. Now, no real numbers were given out of this very short article here. So they are using AI and it is helping improve copper recovery. And continuing on, China's gold binge extends to 10th month as reserves climb. You do get the sense that they're not buying as many U.S. treasuries and maybe some of that money is going into gold. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Bullion held by the People's Bank of China rose by 930,000 troy ounces in August, the central bank said on Thursday. That's equivalent to about 29 tons. Total reserves now sit at 2,165 tons, with around 217 tons added in a run of purchases that began in November. So the buying spree continues in China for gold. And here are just a few headlines on there have been a few strikes here and attempted strikes. Cadelco seals early contract deal with El Teniente Supervisors Union. First Quantum reaches deal with Panama Copper Mine Union, avoids strike. Because, of course, there's a strike at Newmont's Penasquito Mine, and it has been going on for months now. And there's a headline here from last week that Newmont is losing $3.7 million a day. I've also heard that it is a major silver producer, this mine out of Mexico that Newmont runs and that has not been functioning. So, pretty interesting situation. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices.
And turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. It is yielding 4.28%. That is 0.06% higher than last week. Turning to the gilts, and I actually looked up, by the way, why they call them gilts, the U.K. bonds. And apparently it's because the edge of the bond used to be gilted, I guess in some sort of you know, faux gold or something. So they call them gilts. So UK 10-year bond or gilts are yielding 4.426%. So that's 0.07% lower than last week. And just turning to Italy, the 10-year bond there is yielding 4.37%, and that is 0.04% higher. So what you're seeing is US and Italian bonds go higher while UK bonds went lower. Interestingly, turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,941.60 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.48 per ounce. That is $0.55 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $910.58 per ounce. That is $42 lower than last week, despite What the WPIC says, platinum is lower, but maybe an opportunity there, not financial advice. And palladium is trading $10 lower at $1,211.65 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.06 lower at $3.74 per pound. Iron ore is trading basically even at $118.97 per metric ton. That is basically $0.70 higher than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at $1 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $1.04 per pound. Nickel is $0.03 lower at $9.45 per pound. Tin is $0.15 higher at $11.96 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is slightly lower at $27.59 per kilogram. That is 13 cents lower than last week. And uranium starting to edge higher at a slightly faster clip here. It is at $60.75 per pound. That is $2.25 higher than last week. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.12 per pound. Zooming out, it looks like the real standout here is uranium with special mention to tin. And otherwise, Metals trading flat to down, but nothing too dramatic. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Anna Gabriela Juarez, president of CTA Environmental Consultants and founders of Women in Mining Central America, back to the Northern Miner podcast. And she's going to discuss her new children's book, Anna's Adventure at the Mine. And I see the picture here right in front of me. It looks beautifully illustrated. So that is very exciting. We're also going to talk about ESG and also what she has seen big picture in the mining industry, including in Central America, and how women are faring in the mining industry. It is a wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Anna Gabriela Juarez, president of CTA Environmental Consultants and founders of Women in Mining Central America to the Northern Miner podcast. Anna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
It's great to have you. It was really interesting the last time we talked. I think we talked about women in mining in Central America. But where I'd like to start this time, Anna, is with your work as an environmental consultant. Tell us, as someone who is basically on the front lines of ESG and environmentalism and mining, where are we? You know, what what is popping up in your discussions? What are some of the big themes you're seeing from your perspective? Thank you, Adrian. So maybe to introduce myself very briefly, I'm a Guatemalan environment consultant. I've been working for the mining industry over the last 20 years, spanning really four continents. And I really dedicated my career to creating sustainable solutions for the mining and energy sector. The company that I work for right now as president of CTA Environment Consultants is an environmental consulting firm specialized in providing comprehensive solutions for the mining industry. So we really tap on many areas. But I think I've seen in the last years, maybe even more in this year, really a shift from the mining companies in ensuring the ESG side. You know, the investors have a really, they're looking at the ESG side very strongly, but they also want to ensure that there's no greenwashing. So everything that we put forward has to have, you know, backed up with evidence. And so I think that the companies are very right now, very aware of that part. And when we provide results for an audit or we when provide whatever we provide for them, the companies from both sides, right? If we're auditing from the side of the investor and doing an environmental and social due diligence or whatever we're doing, they always want to ensure that what companies are saying they're doing, they're really doing it. So I think that maybe has been one of the shifts that I've seen in the last maybe two years, but maybe a strong, strong year this year. Interesting. So in a sense, compliance, as you were mentioning before the show, uh, compliance, I guess it's important for everybody, right? Because I mean, if you're the mining company and you're hiring people to help you, you know, comply with ESG mandates, and then you have nothing to show for it, I guess everybody wants a paper trail at the end of the day. Yes, exactly. And that's what they need to do, right? It's not just saying it, but actually doing it. And I think that is what has been happening lately. I think there's been a lot of talk about the ESG movement, but also the greenwashing movement that has come with that. And I think companies that are responsible, they really want to show that, you know, what they're saying is really what they're actually doing. To ask a really kind of perhaps overly basic question, then, how important is it to comply with ESG? In other words, if you don't comply with ESG as a mining company, where does that leave you? I think many companies right now have to comply just because it has to do with this perspective as well, right? If you don't have the social approval, or like they say, a social license to operate from you know, the community surrounding you, then you cannot operate. It doesn't matter if you have the money, if you don't have the money, if you have the environmental permits, if you don't have them. So the ESG comprehends you know, so many, the environmental side, the social side, the governance side. So you really have to be sure that you're covering all the fronts to ensure that you can move forward the project. So you have to it's not something that is you know you can consider to do it's something that you have to do now it's interesting because you know some you know resource enthusiasts shall we say are starting to get skeptical interestingly on esg and you know feeling that maybe you know the public is starting to think it's passing i mean what what do you have to say about like that sort of idea i think the problem i i feel personally is that it got too broad and then i think there was also this problem of 
too many, you know, standards coming in, the investors having all these different guidelines to compare it with. And then I think there was a confusion between what the mining industry, you know, was providing and what the investors were expecting. And I think there's been just been not really a clear understanding between the two parts. And I think that has caused some confusion. I think that has been been getting better now. But I think there's, yeah, I think, like you say, there's some skepticism because I would think because of also the greenwashing, right? People are saying, okay, yes, I comply with this. Yes, I comply with this. But then when you really look at it and go closer, it's not enough what they're doing and it's really not complying. So I think that is where the skepticism has grown. Okay, excellent. And just finally on the ESG side of things. So where do you think companies need to focus the most? Like what are some of the areas that you feel are not being addressed enough or or are there any areas that you feel like, you know, companies are often missing the mark? Uh, what needs to be improved in your opinion? We work with mining companies that are very robust. So what I've seen is really an impeccable sense of work ethic and that they really want to go not just what, you know, what they what they ask to do, but they go always a step forward to that, right? They always go and do more than that. And I think that one of the things that I've seen lately is that they put more attention and work closer with the communities. I think the community side has been always sometimes been left a bit aside. But in Latin America specifically, I think we have seen a big anti-mining movement in the last years. And even this year, right, if you see, for example, what is happening in Chile, what is happening in Argentina, what is happening well in Guatemala, we have had it several years already. But what we saw right now happening with the government of, of AMLO in, in Mexico or in Colombia, right? So I think we see that we need to work every time stronger with the communities, but also with the government and educate them. So I think mining companies are seeing the importance of working closer to communities and not just with the heads of the communities, but also with the families, with the children. And I think that's where we tap in with the women in mining work that we're doing. It's like a political campaign of sorts. I mean, you have to knock on doors almost is what you're saying, right? I mean, and get to know people and get them to know you in a sense. Yeah, that's exactly like how it feels like. But I think that's also what the people expect because they're, you're the neighbor, right? So you want to be the good neighbor that is doing great work at their backyard. So I think you need to be close to them. So speaking of Latin America, you're working on a magazine right now with the Northern Miner on Central America. That's not why we set up this discussion, but since you're here, tell us about Central America and you know what are your thoughts on mining in Central America? We don't talk about it as much as say South America. So, so what are you working on there? Yes, so we started and that is going to be launched very soon together with the Northern Miner, a magazine called Focus on Mining in Central America and the Caribbean. And the idea really behind this was because when investors, but even, you know, geologists or miners think about mining in Latin America, they don't really think about Central America. Central America is a really, and the Caribbean, it's a really small area. We have quite a lot of countries, it's Guatemala to Panama. So we have like six, eight countries there. And then we have uh, the Caribbean side as well. But mining is really not new in our region. We have really attracted since the colonial times from the Spanish Empire in 1492, in Columbus times, you know, mining. But it has not dominated our regional economy. We are mainly agricultural and we really started really more recently on the mining space. But we have some great geological potential. We have world-class deposits. For example, we have Pueblo Viejo, 
of Barrick that has a huge project and operation of around almost $7 billion of investment and a production of around 800,000 ounces per year. You know, we have projects like that. Then we have First Quantum of Copper, for example, in Panama. That is also a huge investment of $6.4 billion and has great deposit of copper and some gold as well. And like that, we have several big players in the region. I think in most of the time we are completely overlooked. So that was the idea of, you know, showcasing the area and the potential that we have in our region. Normally what people hear from our region is the bad things that happen, but we wanted to showcase the amazing projects and really the potential that we have for the mining industry in our region. Very interesting. And, you know, you're describing a bit of a pushback that we're seeing in South America. Do you feel like that in a sense, maybe there's like an opportunity in a certain way or maybe mining hasn't been as central as, say, in somewhere like Chile or Peru. So maybe it doesn't have the same taint, shall we say. How do you compare the two regions in a sense? I think we have had a pushback as well in Central America, sadly. I think maybe it has not been seen as much as we don't have many players. As If you think about Chile, I don't know how many companies they might have there, but it's above 100 companies they might have there. In our countries, we have maybe four or five projects per country. So it's not as big. So maybe we don't hear as much, but there has been some pushback. But I think there has been some great opportunities as well. For example, in Honduras, there have been some great movements with the new government, even though at the beginning, I think, was some confusion regarding, you know, if they really wanted mining. They have been showing that, you know, that they're going to keep moving forward with mining operations. Guatemala right now, that was also, I think, on the a bit on the red zone because of the consultations according to the ILO 169 regarding indigenous communities consultations. I think we're almost getting over that part as well. So I think we will flourish very soon and come out of that part. And I think people that were in South America will see that Central America also has also great potential. It's kind of interesting, the pushback and the nature of the pushback, because On one hand, one understands it from just historical basis and maybe, you know, communities have not been included as much in the conversation. That being said, you know, it does seem like there's an increasing narrative that if we want to go to a greener economy, we're going to need these metals. So I wonder, do you think it's going to get weirdly, do you think it's going to get easier to sell mining as time goes on? I hope so. I hope so. I think the problem in Latin America and maybe a bit more also in Central America is the lack of education that we have. We have a lot of uneducated people. So I think that makes it a bit hard for, you know, bringing the narrative that we needed for electric cars and things like that. But I think for the cities, definitely, I think it's something that can also on the government level is something that will need to be used more because we're also really resource rich countries, right? They will see the potential that it has in generating revenue also for the government. Interesting. Okay, excellent. So you also uh, wrote a book recently, Anna's Adventure in the Mine. Tell us a little bit about that. So what are you up to with this children's book? Yeah, so Anna's Adventures at the Mine is not just a story. I really wrote it as a manifesto for change. I hope that it gives hope to kids and that it provides a tool for empowerment because it shows strong women as role models in STEM and mining. So we aim to inspire the next generation of young girls to dream big, to defy the stereotypes that we have normally about mining. 
and seek to create a more equitable world. So it's really not just a story. It has something else there. The story really revolves around Anna. So it's really a tale. But Anna is a girl and it parks in this adventure in this secret mining realm where it discovers the beauty of minerals and the importance of mining in the daily life. And it really, what we want to transmit is that it encourages children to explore their passion, to explore the world of mining, that they want to study STEM sciences as well. And through the story also, because all the characters that we have are real people. So it's inspired in real life mining leaders from around the world. We want to showcase also the girls that, you know, you can become whatever you want. You can become a scientist, an engineer, a miner. And you can be in the in the work in the mining industry, but, but also be successful. So we want to encourage and uh, motivate the girls to get out of the comfort zones. Fascinating. And I guess, was it also to educate on mining at all? Or was it more just based on, you know, follow your dreams? You can no. do it too, to help encourage, you know, women come into mining. Was there also like a, we were mentioning just earlier, the politics, shall we say, of Central and South America uh, being difficult for miners. Was that also part of the mission? Yes, completely. Part of our objectives in Women in Mining Central America is to change the narrative that we currently have about mining. So we need to showcase people, you know, what is even mining? Because that's the problem. A lot of people don't even know what mining is. So it is definitely a tool um, for changing this narrative, but also, of course, for empowering women because that's one of the things that we also are looking for in women in mining work that we're doing and the importance of female empowerment and the crucial role they play in the mining industry. Okay, excellent. So how is this going to roll out then? I don't believe it's released yet. Is that correct? When is it going to be released? If people want to buy it, how does that all going to take place? Yeah, so it's not released yet. We will be selling it worldwide in Amazon. Next week is the pre-sale and it will be launched officially end of month in Amazon Worldwide. All the proceedings from the book will be for women in Mining Central America and to expand our existing mineralogist club that is exactly doing this, educating kids about the importance of mining in our daily lives and educating them about, you know, all the different STEM careers. So we're going to be selling this book Amazon mainly, but also in bookstores. Okay, excellent. And have you managed to get a publisher yet? Because I could see a publisher jumping on this. Uh, is this a self-published book? Well, if someone is interested, please let me know. <laughs> I am right <laughs> okay. now self-publishing. So it's right now it's really just my work uh, with the support, of course, of Women in Mining Central America and the companies that are sponsoring our organization. But right now we, we don't have a publisher. So we're looking forward to see this growing. We already... The book, well, I wrote it in Spanish because that's my mother tongue, but it was translated already into English with the support of Bluestone Resources, the Lundin group of companies. And it was translated also already by um, the Saudi Geological Service uh, from, you know, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They translated to Arab. And we're right now looking for sponsors for Portuguese and French. So we're already having some conversations for that as well. Very impressive. And as far as the target group, how old are the kids that you think that are, you're targeting in a sense with this book? Yeah, so the target for kids is right now 8 to 13 years old, but also the target is the mining companies. <laughs> we want them to embrace the story 
because it emphasizes the importance of the female empowerment and the crucial role women play in the industry. And by integrating the book into their initiatives, companies can strengthen also their ties with their communities, encourage more girls to dream without limits, and showcase their commitment to diversity and equality while we're changing the narrative of the industry. So just as we're wrapping up here then, tell us about Women in Mining. You're the founder of Women in Mining Central America. What is new at Women in Mining Central America? What are you guys up to? What is next on the agenda? What do we have to look forward to? Yes, so I will be um, definitely next uh, right now in London. We were invited by uh, the ICMM to be part of an event they're hosting. They're, in fact, supporting this initiative of the book as well. They bought around 300 books they're giving out to all the CEOs and mining leaders that are coming to that event in London. We're supporting and being there as well for the event and the Northern Miner that week in London in October. But we are also right now already planning some additional advocacy initiatives that we're doing, for example, in PDAC next year for the Mining in Central America and Caribbean Day. And well, we are going to be have a presence for the book also in, in Saudi for the big FMF event they have there in January. So I think there's quite a lot of things moving around just regarding the education piece that I think people see the importance of educating kids. Then also in the side of the advocacy, you know, just to showcase the potential that we have in Central America and the Caribbean and, you know, the mining potential that we have. And of course, we're working always on the gender piece as well, trying to reach more women. We have right now an event online on the 5th of October. It's one a Zoom event that we have where we have mining leaders, uh, five women mining leaders from around the world, you know, having a panel discussion with us regarding the importance of mining education to empower women and get more women into mining as well. So we have a lot of things happening, but we're happy where this is taking us. Okay, excellent. And so just as a final question then, how is the mining industry doing in regard to women? You know, we've been discussing this for years now. You know, as long as really I've been at the newspaper, but especially, say, since 2016, when the ESG conversation really started getting ramped up, is the mining industry making improvements? I assume it is. But how is the mining industry doing in regard to women? I think it has um, moved down. It was going up and then I think when went a bit down during the pandemic, just because there's a lot of women that, you know, have to you had to stay home and look after the kids. But I think we're fully already getting back into track where we were before. But there's still a lot of underrepresentation in gender disparity in mining. We always still talk about less than 18% of the global formal mining workforce are women. So it's still low numbers. Uh, we have amazing cases, though, like Barrick and Pueblo Viejo in Dominican, where they have moved really the needle from 8% to 22% in less than four years. So I think there's really great examples of how it can be done and it can be done. But the statistics are still really low for, you know, for the for the average. Anna Gabriela Juarez, president of CTA Environmental Consultants and founder of Women in Mining Central America. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you, Adrian, for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Anna Gabriela Juarez for joining us here on the Northern Miner Podcast, a friend of the program 
And if you want to meet Anna, as you heard there, you can find her at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London in just a month from now. If you want more information, simply go to events.northernminer.com. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. Take care.